Welcome to the Grow Bowl with Disability podcast, brought to you by Ferros Care, a podcast dedicated to smashing stereotypes and talking about the things people with disability care about most to help us live bolder, healthier, better connected lives. I'm journalist Pete Timms. And I'm Tristram Peters. I work for Disability Service Directory Clickability and I'm a wheelchair user living with spinal muscular atrophy. And our guest is Australian singer-songwriter Rachel Lacar. Now, you might remember her from the very first season of The Voice Australia, where she came third. And since then, she's released three top 10 ARIA charting albums and is legally blind. In this episode, we'll find out how Rachel discovered her love of music, the struggles she had to overcome as a blind person in a seeing world, and how she made it to the top of her game. Rachel, welcome to Grow Bowl with Disability. Hiya. So, Rachel, you were born with retinitis pigmentosa. Can you explain it to us and how it affects you day to day? Yeah, so retinitis pigmentosa means that I have a degenerative genetic eye condition and I was born with it and diagnosed at six months old and I have tunnel vision, short-sightedness, night blindness and it deteriorates over time. Mine's a slowly deteriorating one, so... Um, sometimes I'll notice that I can't see things as even as well as last year that I used to. So you never know when it's going to go. You don't know if it's stable. Um, I don't know if mine's stable at the moment, but um, I'm hoping I can keep what I have. But uh, if not, it hasn't really stopped me from doing anything I've ever wanted to do, sometimes much to my parents' dismay. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said that you were diagnosed at six months. How progressive was it sort of as a young child? We Could you see until you were like six and it got really bad? Or tell us about it, how, it, how the journey of it. Well, that's interesting because when I was little, I didn't really have a concept of what other people could see. I just mm. thought what I could see was normal. So I thought, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't know what you're talking about. I just bump into a lot of things. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, people would say, what can you see? And I said, I can see this, 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 this. <laughs> it really didn't register. Um, but I, I think I had uh, a fair bit more, maybe 50%, and now I've got about 5% vision left. Um, but I was lucky. I had a lot of support from my parents. My mum was a stay-at-home mum, and she taught me the alphabet before I went to school and <laughs> so, I, so I wouldn't be behind. Um because I went to a mainstream school, mm-hmm. but they were really supportive there. I had an SSO that taught me how to touch type, and I didn't feel like I was left behind really at any point. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that the school was so inclusive and had those practices in place. Are there any times when you, you sort of think, because it is degenerative, why me? Are there any moments where you pause and you get frustrated by it? I imagine it's, it's quite a, a long journey. Uh, look, not too often, to be honest. I'm, I feel like I've spent most of my life fighting back against people that think that I can't do things. Yeah. I'd, I'd be always determined to show what I can do and not what I can't do. But there are moments where I just stop and think. And, and I just remember a couple of years ago, it was only like one day I could actually see nothing. There could be nothing there. I won't be able to see any sunsets. I won't be able to see you know, all the places in the world. So that was a little bit depressing. But um, it's also, I don't know, It's you deal with whatever you're given. Everyone has their obstacles yeah. and, you know, mine's maybe a bit more obvious, but, um, you know, it, it could be worse. <laughs> so yeah. I was, you know, I'm alive and I'm, I'm happy and healthy and have so many things in life to be grateful for. 
But yeah, it, it it's more annoying than anything else. I think it's more <laughs> of an inconvenience because you have to, you know, I can't drive, so I always have to ask people to take me places or come with me. And yeah, that's that's inconvenient. But, you know, apart from that, I'm happy. Now, you mentioned school just before and you said the teachers are great. What about kids? Kids can be nasty or honest sometimes, if you know what I mean. I'll tell you what what they're thinking. How was school for you? Uh, you know, school was fine. Um, I had, I think kids, especially when they're young, whatever they're pre- presented with is normal and then they develop, you know, opinions later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was happy to give education to kids that would ask me questions because kids ask all the questions so I would answer and and I'm glad that I could give them that opportunity to learn about someone different from them. But in high school, I don't know, I had a great circle of friends. Um, There were times where people would be a bit stupid but I just sort of recognised it for what it was. I learned to laugh at myself as well so that Mm -hmm. others couldn't laugh at me. Um, cause you know, if a bully's laughing at you and you're also laughing, it's not as fun for them. <laughs> no, destroys it, doesn't it? Yeah. My friends sort of made a game of using my cane to hit the water bottles around. So they would, you know, hit it with a water bottle and kick a goal and <laughs> this and that. So yeah. I often find that like for myself as a power chair user, if a kid asks me uh, a question, the parent will always go, oh, you can't ask that, you can't ask that, which just instantly adds that child's stigma about discipline for the rest of their life. Um, so, I mean, education is so important. Like you said there, it's it's about talking to them and, and explaining it. I mean, you must do that a fair bit. Yeah, well, when I can, um, there is a lot of people, I don't think they know how to answer their kids sometimes. Um, yeah. They're scared of offending, but yeah, I'm I'm definitely open to, and and would encourage uh, asking questions and learn about different things. I have been overjoyed when kids would ask just in my vicinity, in my earshot, like, "What's that thing she's holding?" And the parents would get down on their knees and say, "Look, that's a cane," uh, you know, so she she can't see very well, so that helps her to find things and not hit into them. And I I'd just be there with a big smile on my face. <laughs> And especially with my guide dog as well, if they know not to pat the guide dog, they'd ask their parents, can I pat it? And they say, no, they're working dog. It's it's helping her. So that's a huge help. Yeah, cool. Now, you might have been losing your sight as a child until now, but also you were discovering your voice. When did you actually um, work out that you could hold a note? <laughs> um, I've been told I came out screaming so <laughs> since I was born. Um <laughs> But I I think because I was so in tune with my ears that mm. I picked up on sound a lot and voices. I used to imitate voices when I was very young and sort of conglomerated into my own voice. Um, yeah, I've always loved music and had a connection with it and that's a place that I felt like a normal person. I know that's, you know, in quotations normal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, it was something I could feel empowered with. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, you can both um, – it, it sounds like it came pretty easily to you, didn't it? You're, you, you're a natural talent at it. Oh, I just loved it. I knew that I loved it and I performed everywhere possible that I could. I didn't imagine that I could make a career out of it because off stage I was still quite shy and self-conscious and um, I was comparing myself to all the people at my school. I went to a music school. Um, okay. And yeah, I loved doing that and being around it all. But 
I did feel a little bit inadequate because there were these amazing musicians around the place and I thought, oh, I'll never live up to that. But because I loved it, I kept taking all the opportunities and it led me to where I am today and I'm truly grateful for it. Well, you can also play a few instruments yourself. Do you think that came easier, as you mentioned, the singing, because you're probably listening a little bit more. Did the instruments come easy to you as well? Uh, sort of. I remember quitting piano when I was six because my teacher wasn't teaching me hard enough songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started off again when I was nine and learned that I had to start from the beginning. But, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I picked up the piano pretty quickly other instruments, yeah, I had the ear for it, but, you know, you also have to have the, the coordination and the finger movement. So, mm, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I, I definitely had the ear for the music and can hear things really well. Um, and I love playing instruments, but it takes a lot of work to learn them well. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, the music school there. So from the age of 12, you started gaining recognition as a singer. You were accepted in the South Australian Public Primary School's choir, the music program at Brighton Secondary School, uh, and you also entered the Fellini Search for a Star where you made it through the grand final chosen as one of the top three performers. I mean, what was that period like? Yeah, I was pretty competitive um, and I just, you know, as I said, I love doing what I did and uh, secretly I loved the spotlight. <laughs> it was exciting and it shifted focus, I think, from my disability to something that I was able to do and I loved it and it was so exciting. Competitions were a bit of a soft spot for me. I'd, I'd enter anything I possibly could and um, it was a chance to learn and better myself as well as a performer. Every opportunity got me better and better and hopefully, you know, led me to a career, which it did. <laughs> so how did you, I mean, you mentioned all those singing competitions. You've been, you went in so many as a young child. But even when you were young, you went to the ultimate one, which was the voice auditions. How did that come about? Yeah, well, uh, I heard blind auditions and I thought, oh, this is going to be the right country, <laughs> <laughs> It's a very niche market, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's perfect. And when I got there, I thought, oh, what is this? <laughs> no, um, my auntie actually suggested to go into The Voice, but it wasn't the first competition I entered. I first went for Australia's Got Talent when I was 16 years old. Yeah. I actually got through those auditions um, on the TV, but... It, it didn't go to air and two weeks later they said you might you're not getting through because there was so many acts and they only could have so many singers so oh, of course because talent they do jugglers and comedians and everything don't they yeah and there's all sorts so i guess they had enough singers and they chucked me mm. so <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter though um because i i was the resilient type so I just went on with year 11 and then went into year 12 and i thought oh I'll try the X Factor this time, surely. Nah, um, I didn't even get to the TV auditions, so that was a flop. But six months later, I auditioned for The Voice because, you know, blind auditions. I, I really liked the idea of the coaches not judging me for anything but my voice. And, of course, the idea of The Voice is that the coaches listen and they've got their swivel chairs and if they like you, they press the button and and want to coach you. Um, so I guess I was trying to prove something to myself and, and didn't want to be taken advantage of because of my disability, um, mm. which, you know, of course it was part of the story, but um, I'm glad I could raise some awareness. And plus the audition was filmed a day before my 18th birthday, so that was quite a celebration. 
did they all turn around for you? I think all the judges did, didn't they? Yeah, they all did in the end. So and had... you chose the big D. Why did you go with Delta? <laughs> yeah, Delta. Well, to be honest, um, it was a lot of things leading up to that because I, I didn't really have a style at that point. I just loved singing any song that I wanted to. And I felt like I was more of a, a jazz girl because I'd been in the jazz band and, and jazz cabaret and stuff in school. And I thought maybe I'd go with Seal because he was one of the coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, you know, Keith Urban is international and Joel Madden was a rock guy and I loved rock and Delta. Um, I had a really special connection with Delta because I'd listened to her growing up. She was the first album I ever bought and, you know, my brother remembers me singing along to Delta while he was trying to play video games (laughs) all the time. Um, But, yeah, and backstage, (laughs) this is probably a bit of a secret, but um, I said, I don't really know who I'm going to choose, maybe Seal. And they said to me, what if Delta turned around? And I thought, is that a hint? <laughs> you got to sort of listen to these little hints because, of course, you know, the voice is a TV show. It's yeah, just, uh, at the end of the day, yeah. Yeah, it's not there to launch your career. You're playing a character. Um, yeah. And I know that might be crushing the dreams of some people, hopefully <laughs> not, but um, you got to play the game a little bit and, and yeah, I, I knew what they were hinting at and, I chose Delta and I realised it was right, the right decision anyway because she was such a huge influence on my life and my music. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, you made the right call because you kept winning and winning and <laughs> progressing through to each round and you came third. I mean, what what was the whole journey like? It, it must have just been a roller coaster. It really was. I was very surprised every time I got through. I know that sounds a bit weird, but um, I I really didn't believe in myself as such. I I believed I was having a great time, but I suppose it was a lot to do with the previous TV shows I went for. I just didn't feel like I was good enough, but I kept getting through and um, I was so happy and uh, semi-finals came around and I got laryngitis for the first time in my life and the oh, last time ooh. in my life. Nerves. <laughs> and you can still see that performance on YouTube now. I sang Nights in White Satin which was a huge song for me mm. and because um, I'd won another competition with that song and travelled to Italy. So uh, it was heartbreaking, honestly, that I couldn't do that song justice. But somehow uh, five minutes before that song I couldn't talk and it just came out. It must have been the adrenaline. Um, wow. But then I still had the grand final to deal with. So... Um, I'll tell you a funny story because I was desperate to get my voice back and I had to do recordings and things. So I asked good old information line, Facebook, and <laughs> a tenor um, told me a secret. He said, oh, that's easy. You just boil a potato and mash it up in a tea towel and stick it around your neck for a few hours. <laughs> so I did. And? <laughs> and it worked. I actually got my voice back. I don't know my what God. we did. Um, but there you go. I think it might be something in the potato that reduces uh, inflammation, maybe. Well, I guess it was harmless, though, even if it didn't work. It just <laughs> yeah, would have smelled I like baked potato. <laughs> literally willing to try anything. Um, but, yeah, it was very exciting and part one, part two of the grand final. Um, yeah, coming third, just ridiculous <laughs> for an 18-year-old to go through that. 
But then an 18-year-old gets signed up to a big music label, and that can be very intimidating. How was it? How did they deal with your disability? Did they try to exploit it for more money, if you know what I mean? Or did they just want to back you in the back of, of just having a great voice? What was that experience like? Um, I didn't really feel exploited. Um, I think maybe during The Voice it was a, a bit played upon, of course, because everyone has a story. They sort of described it as like, we want to focus on your music, but we also want to talk about your story. So I was pretty much known as uh, the singer who happens to be blind. (laughs) That was my tagline. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then when I was signed up to Universal, um, I was pretty much portrayed as this little innocent girl who sung in different languages. And, you know, that was nice, I think, at the time for the 18-year-old me. And I was really grateful for that because, you know, not everyone gets to be with a big label and release an album. And it was very intimidating um, because I'd never been really in the music industry. I had no idea what anyone did. I didn't know what a label did. I don't know what a manager or an agent. I knew nothing. So I was lucky to have my parents there all the time to come with me and support me and help me make big decisions for my future. And, of course, you know, they want to make as much money as possible. So <laughs> they helped me, you know, not sign the bad deals and they tried to get me the best deal possible. And I remember just after uh, or just before the blind auditions were filmed, we had all these contracts to sign Uh and uh, there there were 30 pages of three different contracts, publishing. (laughs) No uh, lawyers around. Well, there was a lawyer, but, you know, you just had to trust that what he said was true. Um, Yeah, it was a bit crazy. And if you didn't sign them, you didn't go ahead. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much saying like the label gets first preference. It was all very scary, but it was a lot of fun as well. And you, you also mentioned the music industry there. I mean, as a whole, what was access like when you're, you're touring, going, doing gigs? Um, you know, what did they have to put anything in place or was it just accessible for you to get up on stage and, and do your thing? Uh, it was always different, I think. Um, I, like I said, I had my parents, my dad usually traveled with me and he'd take me up on stage if there were steps. Um, I think there was only a couple of little mishaps where I'd miss the step or something. But um, yeah, it was pretty easy. Uh, When I got up on stage, I had to get my dad to tell me where the audience was because I could never see where people were. Right. But I wanted to be able to connect with them as well. So I'd want to be able to sing to every person in the audience instead of just facing forward. And, of course, I couldn't dance around the stage. There would always be some sort of speaker that I would be creeping towards that might give my dad a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) I'd always be moving a bit forward. So a lot of the times I'd need an, a bright white X on just underneath my feet so I didn't move too far away from it and fall off the stage. Now, Rachel, the music industry has really changed, I think, incredibly in the last even five years, just especially in terms with Spotify and streaming and all that sort of stuff and how the big music companies operate. So from back in your day, you released an album, you sold some singles, got radio play and everyone made some money. How are you finding the record industry or just, sorry, the music industry now with all the streaming and you actually have to release one song to make money? Yeah, well, even back then it was pretty much transforming to streaming. Um, But, yeah, unfortunately it's not as lucrative for musicians. It's it's getting even harder. Um, I think Spotify, it's like 0.00001 
cent per play or something mm-hmm. yeah. as opposed to, I don't know, $2.50 per download on iTunes. So yeah. it's, um, yeah, a lot harder now, to be honest, to get out there and, and the market is so saturated with these amazing musicians, which is great, um, but also, you know, it's harder to get into. It's harder to be noticed. It's harder. Everything's harder. Um, and especially with all the, the COVID restrictions, it's harder to put on shows. So, yeah, it's really, really a struggle town at the moment for musicians, but I'm I'm very lucky that I'm able to do some shows around in Adelaide and and still release music because that's what I love doing and that's what I'm going to do no matter what. Absolutely. And in terms of releasing music, is there an album, a single coming out, anything soon? Well, I actually just released one a couple of months ago called Can Do, and it's in support of Can Do for Kids, a, a charity that supports kids who are blind and deaf and sensory impaired. Um, and they supported me a lot throughout my childhood. And I've I've never really sung about my disability, but this one was kind of a little bit of insight into it and how I imagine the world. Um, and I've heard you know, on this podcast, you guys touch on uh, universal design, which I've learned about in my uni degree that I'm doing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk all day. I'm sorry. That's all right. Keep going. It's <laughs> great. Um, so, yeah, the universal design of imagining a world where everything is accessible to everybody and how easy it would be and how uh, inclusive and, you know, everyone would feel like they're included and you know, valued in society and just, you know, uh, my ideal world, I suppose. So that's, um, yeah, it's called Can Do, uh, my attitude and and hope you like it if you have a listen. Now, also, I want to know, you've been through it all in the sense of going through all the competitions, going through The Voice, signing up with Universal Music. You've seen it all. You actually hit the sort of the musical stage at that transition into the streaming side. Anyone coming through who's dreaming of a career in the industry, especially if they've got a disability, what would you say to them? Ah, oh, I'd say, well, I suppose it depends what they want to do, uh, depending on what avenue they want to go down. I'd say if you're thinking about doing a show like The Voice, you should probably get some experience in the industry first so you know what to expect and what to do with that spotlight once it's on you because when I was 18, like I said, I had no idea what was going on and I couldn't, I don't think, take full advantage of the opportunity that I was given. So um, when these opportunities do come up, you want to be ready and you want to have connections. You might even be able to do it without the show, um, which is totally possible. You can put your music up on Triple J Unearthed and and make recordings. Do it as much as possible because I think experience is really important and you learn so much every performance. I'm still learning and I've done a million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Rachel, you also have a guide dog. How old were you when you started using Ella? I think I was 20 years old. I'd actually uh, deferred my speech pathology degree two years and I couldn't defer it anymore. So I either had to do it or not do it. And me being me, I wanted to do it. (laughs) Um, But the thing that scared me most wasn't actually the exams or the assignments or anything like that. It was actually finding a seat in a big auditorium. (laughs) Because um, I'm regularly late to things, you ask, ask any of my friends. Um, 
So I was scared that I would get in, say, five minutes after the lecture had started and need to whack everyone's legs to find a seat <laughs> with my cane. But with Ella, I got her and, and she would just, you know, walk in quietly, put her nose on a chair and I'd sit down like everyone else. And this would happen on public transport and, and everywhere. And she did so much more than that. She found doors for me. She took me down flights of stairs Um helps me find things. She's just incredible and she's kept me safe. And their motto was, um, even if I get lost, I'll always be safe. And Ella was two and a half when I got her and she's almost 10 now. She'll be 10 in July and she's almost ready for retirement. Then what are you going to do? I'll get another one. <laughs> and, and does Ella stay with you and the other dog or is there a retirement village for seeing yeah, dogs? Yeah, well, you can. Um, I don't think I would be able to give Ella to anyone. No, no. <laughs> she, we've just had such a strong bond and she's my baby. Yeah, <laughs> she's of course. She's a little girl. Um, and, yeah, I love her to bits, but I know she'll be spoiled rotten. She'll be lying on the couch, which guide dogs are not meant to do, but I let her. Um, and she'll be just going, nah, nah, you have to go out <laughs> to the other dog. Um, but, yeah, she's she's just gorgeous. She'll be a regular pet after that and she'll be spoiled and then I'll be working with another guide dog. Nice. So where is Rachel Lear Carr right now in her career? Have Where are you with your uni study, your jobs, music, what's next? Hmm. Well, I feel like I've done a lot of albums so far. I did a Christmas album. I did a singer-songwriter kind of album. I did covers. I did Beatles covers, which I'm actually incidentally doing a few Beatles shows this year. But I thought I'd focus mostly on doing live shows if I can. It's a bit of a hard market at the moment to, you know, do live things because they always seem to be getting cancelled last minute. But um, that's what I mostly want to do at the moment. And also, yeah, as you said, the degree, I'm doing a Bachelor of Disability and Developmental Education now, not speech pathology. Ah, what happened to speech pathology? <laughs> I quit after six months. That's not like you. you <laughs> Rachel, you don't quit. <laughs> no, no, I shouldn't. Oh, well, I loved it, but I also wanted to focus more on music, I think, because um, it was pretty hectic still, even at that time. Um, and I think I'm at a place now where I can do a degree. I have a bit of a goal uh, to do a degree by the time I'm 30. So three more years. <laughs> Plenty of time. Plenty, yeah, heaps of time. <laughs> so, Rachel, as you know, this podcast is called Grow Bold with Disability, and we always like to ask, what does living a bold life mean to you? A bold life? Mm. I suppose it means to take every opportunity as it comes, um, live like every day is your last and, oh, gosh, be bold. <laughs> it gets everyone, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a hard question because you think, you know, bold is different for everyone. It could be loud and exciting or it could just be, you know, the little wins and celebrating those. So whatever works for you. <laughs> Fair enough. Nice. That's a good answer. Now, Rach, thanks so much for joining us today on the Grow Bowl with Disability podcast brought to you by Ferros Care. And listeners can find out more about Rachel, the Christmas album, the Can Do single, the tours, fingers crossed that these things keep happening, and anything else that's coming along in the links provided in today's episode show notes. Rachel Leacar, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on the Grow Bowl with Disability. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
This podcast is brought to you by Ferros Care, an NDIS partner delivering local area coordination services in Queensland, South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory. Ferros Care is a people care organisation committed to helping people live bolder lives. We call it Growing Bold. And for over 30 years, Ferros has been making it real for both older Australians and those living with disability. To find out more, head to ferroscare.com.au.